Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, February 5th. Amanda Borsell down here with our diplomatic correspondent, Lazer Berman, and diaspora affairs reporter, Judah Ari Gross. Hello to you both. Good morning. Hi, Amanda. Great to have you both here with me. Laser is just back from covering Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's trip to France. We'll hear highlights from a lengthy conversation with William Deroff, the CEO of the Conference of Presidents, as well as a grassroots effort to reverse censorship of a Holocaust film right here in Israel. But first, a word from our sponsors. Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And we're back. Before we dive in, a brief update on this weekend's rallies in which tens of thousands of Israelis again protested the proposed judicial reforms for a fifth week in a row. Along with the main protests in Tel Aviv, smaller demonstrations were held in rainy Jerusalem, in Haifa, and elsewhere. Speaking from the Haifa rally, opposition leader Yair Lapid said the, the protesters had come, quote, to save the country, end quote. If you'd like to hear more on the proposed judicial reforms, please check out our new podcast series, What Matters Now, where author slash philosopher Dr. Micha Goodman gives a really in-depth 360-degree take. Laser, let's start with you. You landed early this morning from France. Uh, thanks for joining us to report on this first meeting between Prime Minister Netanyahu and French President Emmanuel Macron since January 2020. Now, I understand that Iran led the discussions. What else happened there? That's right, Amanda. We landed about 5 a.m. this morning, so there hasn't been uh, too much opportunity to sleep. But you're right that Iran was the main topic that Netanyahu wanted to talk about. Um, he had a private meeting with uh, President Emmanuel Macron at the Elysee Palace on Thursday night. Basically, right after we landed, we headed right over to the palace. They started with a quick photo op, embraced, waved from the stairs, and then headed inside. Uh, most of the time, it was a uh, two-hour dinner meeting with their respective staffs, and then they headed in uh, for that private meeting, which was much shorter. Um, but yes, Iran, the nuclear program, uh, France, again, is uh, one of the P5 plus one powers. It's on the UN Security Council, and Israel is pushing for its Western allies to declare the JCPOA talks in Vienna that have been stalled for months. Israel wants its Western allies to declare the JCPOA nuclear talks officially dead. It wants this issue referred to the UN Security Council, and it wants the snapback sanctions to kick in, which will be a series of uh, harsh sanctions on Iran 
and uh, basically trying to sanction the Islamic Republic uh, into giving up its nuclear ambitions. That being said, and I, well, I should just also add that um, we might think of France as, you know, um, not always the closest ally to Israel in terms of, of Europe, but on Iran, uh, they are surprisingly hawkish and always have been. You can go back to the um, bombing of the Marine Barracks in 1983 in Lebanon, in which over 200 U.S. Marines were killed and 58 French peacekeepers. And throughout the decades, there's really been a lot of tensions between the two countries, um, and, and that uh, is reflected in France's positions. Um, again, like I say, they've been even harsher than than the United States um, during the talks at times. So, so France is certainly keeping a close eye on uh, Iran and Iran's nuclear program. Um, but there were other things that came up as well. Um, this was not in the Israeli readout, not surprisingly, but um, but it was leaked to Le Monde, a French newspaper, that that Macron gave a very pretty stern warning about this judicial re- reform and said, you know, if it goes through unchanged, then France and Israel don't have a common uh, vision of what democracy is anymore. And that's that's a pretty harsh statement. Um, Netanyahu seemed to think that Macron doesn't really know the details of what is in this judicial reform and, and did spend some time explaining that to him as well. Other things came up. Um, you know, they spoke about settlements and um, we had a scuba Times of Israel that Netanyahu said, listen, I need to give something to my coalition on settlements. It's not going to be what Smotrich wants. It's not going to be what Bengvir wants, but I do have to do something. He promised there would not be annexation. Um, so they did go into into many um, of those kind of contentious issues. And, and it, you also had a warning about the status quo from the French side. Um, and on R- Ukraine and Russia was actually interesting. They spoke about that. And uh, sources told me that Netanyahu said, we will be sending military things to Ukraine, but there is a red line and we, against Russia and we can't go too far. Military things could obviously obviously mean many different things. Um, but it seems like it doesn't mean what Ukraine wants, which is uh, air defense systems. Um, so there, there were some interesting um, details to come out of those talks, some of which you can read uh, first at Times of Israel. Um, but again, like you said, Iran is the focus and probably the reason that Netanyahu chose to go to France for his first official uh, visit in the, during this tenure as prime minister. There is a new embassy in town. President of Chad, Mohammad Idris Debi Itno, opened a new embassy in Tel Aviv last week. The word historic appears multiple times in your piece, Laser. Tell us why it is so. Yes, Chad is a large country. If you look on a map right in the heart of Africa, below the Sahara Desert, and in between East and West Africa. So its, it's geography is very important. It's facing an Islamist terrorism problem. It neighbors um, countries like Libya. So it is really, uh, you know, its geography makes it a very important ally for Israel. And let's also not forget that Israel, especially Netanyahu, has has been uh, undertaking a particular push to uh, expand Israel's relations in the continent. And he did make some headway um, during his previous tenure. Now, in 2019, the current president's, president's father, um, Idris Debi pledged during a Netanyahu visit that he would open the embassy. He was killed actually in battle in 2021. And his son, Mohammed Debi, took over. Um, he made the trip. And um, on Thursday, 
morning before Netanyahu took off for Paris, they, they officially inaugurated uh, the embassy. Obviously not in Jerusalem, it's in Tel Aviv. Um, and Debbie also went to the to the Western Wall, the Temple Mount, and by all accounts, it was a very emotional visit for him. Um, and the context here is, yes, like, like in other places in Africa, there's a lot of uh, desire, a lot of thirst for Israeli know-how on agriculture, on water, on energy, medicine. There was a team of Israeli doctors in Chad um, at the time. They were there last week opening an ICU as the president was in Israel. Um, but also, yeah, there are as are absolutely security implications. And I do also want to add that that's a place where France and Israel can cooperate. France generally has a significant military presence in West Africa to fight against terrorism. And um, Israel can, you know, can, can add some sort of intelligence and some sort of um, know-how there as well. So that that's something where I'm sure um, Netanyahu and Macron talked about as well. And now we're going to keep an eye on for other African countries that could join um, and follow in Chad's footsteps, perhaps Niger, perhaps Somalia. There are other countries um, that uh, could reasonably, in the in the coming years, um, you know, take this step as well. Judah, turning to you, you, our editor David Horvitz, and I sat down for a conversation with CEO of the Conference of Presidents William Deroff last week in our Jerusalem offices. I have to say that I personally was fascinated to learn that the topic of religion is off the table for public statements due to this Schindler doctrine from about 30 years ago. What stuck out for you? So pretty much anyone who knows William Deroff, who's uh, sort of been a pretty prominent figure in American Jewish communal life for the past few decades. Um, he's uh, a bit cagey, a bit uh, reticent to sort of weigh in on hot button issues. Um, he sort of, his mantra and his uh, philosophy is that um, you sort of, you get where things get done better behind closed doors rather than sort of in the public forum. Um, and so it's rare for him to sort of weigh in on things. And if you look back, you know, he normally comes to Israel and speaks to uh, the Times of Israel once a year. Um, and his focus is almost always on anti-Semitism in the United States. That's sort of always um, where they're looking and shoring up American Jewish institutions. And our meeting with him uh, last week um, dealt with Israel, um, and it dealt with him being very concerned about the um, crisis of divisiveness, as he referred to it, that's taking place here, um, including with the rallies that we've uh, been seeing, sort of the escalating rhetoric on both sides um, of these uh, judicial reforms, as well as sort of the general political environment today, and him very, very delicately saying maybe there's middle ground that Israelis should be looking into. And that's sort of as uh, dramatic as William Daroff normally gets in terms of uh, weighing in on Israeli domestic issues. Um, so that that his he has this great concern, both in terms of what it means for um, for Israel itself, and also, you know, how that impacts American Jews and their ability to advocate for Israel um, and sort of to describe Israel as a, a place with shared values, um, you know, in the U.S. is something that's going to be challenged if a lot of these reforms go forward. Thanks for that, Judah. We'll go to a short break. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. 
And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Laser, as we know, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in the region last week. And as we discussed previously on the podcast, he delivered a pretty startling speech in which he somewhat chastised Netanyahu and the proposed judicial overhaul. You wrote a really interesting analysis that basically states that maybe there was a subtext to his statements. Tell us more. All right. So we covered Blinken's visit uh, very closely. It was that Monday, Tuesday of last week he was here. And what struck me and struck other people as well, that at basically every time he, point he got in front of a microphone, he would say uh, that Israel and the United States don't only share common interests, but they also share common values. And these are values that you have to protect. Kind of a polite, but not very hidden warning um, as Israel deals with the, this kind of bitter debate about uh, judicial reform and other initiatives by this new right-wing government. Um, and alongside Netanyahu, he listed a whole a litany of elements that make up democratic values, you know, the right to free speech, free press, um, right to protest. And he did that again at his press conference. And I thought that was, that was pretty striking. Uh, I called it hectoring. Now, I'm sure that the U.S. is concerned about this, um, and and there was also the uh, Blinken's warning that Israel must act with consensus here. And he was telling Netanyahu, uh, you know, working with consensus is always better in a democracy. I'm sure Netanyahu knows that. Um, and that's certainly not going to happen on the ju judicial reform issue. Um, but there might be something deeper going on here as well. If you want to put a positive spin on it, and some people did, including former ambassador to the U.S. Michael Oren, is that the U.S. is really fed up with Iran, not only with the protests, but especially with Iran's increased involvement in the war in Ukraine, which is the West's top issue over the past year. Um, and they're saying, Israel, listen, we're happy to cooperate with you more extensively, even possibly on some quiet kinetic operations against Iran, against its drone program. But what you have to do for us is make sure that all of these distractions, like um, going up to the Temple Mount, settlement construction, uh, you know, a too far-reaching judicial reform doesn't make that very easy for us. And that also makes it hard politically for Biden, whose progressive wing is not happy with him on what he's done with Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, he hasn't revived any peace process. He hasn't really reined in any settlement construction, hasn't even opened up the consulate uh, in Jerusalem for the Palestinians. So um, that's not going to make Netanyahu's, uh, Biden's life easier if he starts cooperating more extensively on um uh, uh, with Israel and Iran, and and that might have been part of the message here. Keep keep the democracy things quiet, and then we uh, we can actually get something done on Iran. 
And finally, Judah, briefly tell us about what happened when the northern city of Harish canceled the screening of a Holocaust documentary because the film's subject, Alfred Hirsch, a German Jew who saved children in Auschwitz, was openly gay. What saved the day was uh, a man named Nitzan Avivi. He's a resident of Harisha, um, sort of community activist and a musician. Um, and when he heard that the the screening that was being put on by the municipality had been canceled um, due to some political pressure, he sort of got to work and organized a private alternative screening, um, invited the director, sort of put out the word on social media, and, uh, you know, the screening was held at the, you know, on the same night that it was supposed to be held by the municipality. Um, and instead of being held in sort of a municipal theater, it was held, um, in a dance studio that, uh, where a projector and chairs had been set up. Um, so this is a documentary called Dear Freddy, um, Freddy Hayakar. It's, um, it's, the the film itself is uh, in English and Hebrew, in Czech and some German, um, and it uh, tells the story of Freddie Hirsch, who was this um, sort of a real athlete, uh, sportsman, um, both for for fun's sake, but also you know at that time he was a real Zionist in this real um, Maccabi spirit, this um, sort of Max Nordau muscular Judaism concept that I think we spoke about this summer when the Maccabi I was held here. So, um, you know, this was something that was not just fun for him, but ideological in a lot of ways. And this was, he was originally from Germany, and then in the with the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s, um, the rest of his family moved to Bolivia. He um, planned on moving to, you know, then Palestine, um, and he stopped along the way in uh, then Czechoslovakia, and he basically got stuck there, um, and he was um, sent to the Theresian, the Theresian ghetto, and then was eventually deported to Auschwitz. And in Auschwitz, he was in this sort of camp within a camp, this uh, Theresian block, uh, family block, that had somewhat better conditions than the rest of the camp, but was still Auschwitz. And he was put in charge of the children. And he ran sort of two barracks full uh, of children. And he was very much sort of a father figure to a lot of them. And he was um, sort of still put an emphasis on uh, physical fitness and hygiene and cleanliness. And as a result, he sort of kept a lot of people alive who otherwise would have died. And in the end, after about six months in Auschwitz, all of the people from this Theresian um, family camp were going to be put to death. Um, there's a question if that would have included Freddie or if he was going to be saved because he'd sort of made himself invaluable um, to the Germans. Um, and he sort of dies this tragic and somewhat ambiguous death where it's not clear if he committed suicide because he found out that the children um, who he'd been caring for and saving um, were going to be um, murdered in Auschwitz, or if he was um, sort of intentionally overdosed and drugged to death by doctors who were concerned that he was going to start in a riot that would result in sort of all of them being killed. That's sort of left ambiguous in the film because it's not really clear today. Uh 
So a couple of years ago, yeah, a couple of years ago, a documentary filmmaker named Ruby Gott um, made this documentary about him. It came out in 2017. Um, it's been screened, you know, on the Israel by the Israeli Khan broadcaster. It's been screened in film festivals all over the world, um, and it was supposed to be filmed in Harish, but um, a number of ultra orthodox politicians opposed it. Um, in general, sort of not only the screening of this documentary, but sort of the entire city's LGBT. Um, uh, programming. And so the city sort of put all of that on hold, including the screening of this documentary um, on the night before International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, and that's sort of what sparked all of this. And so um, for now, the city says it plans to bring back some of the, its LGBT programming after it sort of does a reassessment. Um, but that's still left a little bit up in the air. Judah, thank you for that. Judah Laser, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.